6 as we continue our look through this book. We've seen so much. It's, it's got so many things in it, and uh, there are some sections that we will uh, go through quicker than other sections for sure. Uh, this being one of the ones that we're just going to slow down a bit here, especially in chapter 6. Last time we looked at uh, the sin of this church in that they were taking each other to courts, the secular courts, and Paul was dismayed at this. He, he said, letting the law settle disputes between saints is already suffering defeat for the kingdom of God. Whether you win your case or not, you have already besmirched the name of Christ. You have uh, not treated one another in love. You have uh, you've been defeated. Even if they rule in your favor, uh, ultimately, you are losing. <clears throat> one of the things that it was doing is that is saying that the lost are wiser than we are. Even though we have the Holy Spirit and a new heart and Bible to guide us, we're saying we don't have the uh, wherewithal to settle these kind of matters. And so what are you saying to the world? And how what a bad testimony that is there. We, we ruin our testimony uh, of Christ before the world. And then he kind of finishes by talking about how we have lost sight of what we're living or in the kingdom, you've lost sight of what the kingdom is all about. It's about self-denial, service, and deferred reward. And by doing this, you have, uh, in a sense, uh, made matters worse. You have, uh, you, you've said it's all about what, what I can have right now. In fact, uh, I'm just gonna, I find this maybe a good way to sum it up because it also, it all, it all so brings it, uh, our message today into this. You see a, a flow here. If we are living for instant gratification and not Christ in eternity, then how are we living any differently than the world? And so the list of sins that we're going to see here in verses 9 and 10 are just like, in, in, in a sense, they're very much in common with taking each other to court. Because what you're saying is, I want it now. I don't care what harm I do. I don't care who I hurt. Um, it's about me. And that's one of the things he, he says there is taking people to court. He says, so what if you are defrauded? So what if, if, if at the end of the day someone mistreats you or takes advantage of you? What you have in glory should far outweigh that. And so how are you not able to let this go and leave it in the Lord? And what we're going to see is that these sins in verses 9 through 10 and all sin. It's pretty much the same thing. You're saying, look, I, I don't care what God says. I want this now, and I'm going to have it. And, and, and so there's a flow here. And then when we get into verses 12 and following, he'll speak on self-denial, how we are to be willing to give up even with the legitimate things for Christ when necessary. So, I'll, you know, as we go through this, I want us to see this flow um, as we uh, continue on uh, through the chapter. <clears throat> So Paul has dealt with the sins of pride and immorality, unloving action towards each other, and here he stops and basically makes a list of some other sins. And so what is his purpose in doing this? I think he's reminding us that we had better examine ourselves to see if we are living in a pattern of these things, because if we are, there are some serious conclusions we're going to have to come to. Uh, not just taking each other to the court again, but if he lists these things, 
uh, and, and it says, if you are living in these, if this is who you are, if, if you're, if this, if you know, he, he mentions, you know, for instance, we'll just think of one, uh, you know, um, adult adultery. It, you know, it's not that a Christian can't commit adultery, but if this is who you are, if you do this, if you live in it, uh, and you do so without a, a, a bad conscience and without repentance, it's there's something far worse than just a Christian committing a sin. He's saying you're not even in the kingdom to begin with. So these are not isolated actions. They're lifestyles. And it's a way for us to judge ourselves and to see whether these things be in us. The Christian just can't live the same as he did before. And he says as much. Such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You're justified. You are not who you are, who you were before. And so the the Corinthians have lost sight of some of the, some of the fundamentals of the faith. They are focused on teachers, but not Christ. They're preoccupied with their spiritual experience and gifts and wisdom, but not in practical holiness. And so Paul says, some of you had better stop and consider what's going on here. They were proud to be broad-minded, and they were letting uh, this guy from chapter 5 uh, continue to live in sin and not do anything about it, but they were not distinctive in their lifestyle. And so we'll deal with a careful definition and explanation of these particular sins, Lord willing, next week. But for now, I want us to kind of look at Paul's all overall point in these three verses and putting him putting them where he does. And so, first of all, we notice here that we should know that we are not what we used to be. Notice how it starts off in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And, and of course, if we follow the the thought through, we see that, uh, did you not, in a sense he's saying, did you not know that Christians don't live like this? Christians don't practice these sins. The first thing he does is ask a question that he expects them to already know. Another way we could say of, of saying this is that those who are not transformed by the gospel are not in the kingdom. They're, they are supporting scripture, and there are, excuse me, supporting scripture all through the Bible. It's something that we have certainly dealt with before, but let's just look at a few of them. Ephesians 2 and 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were followers of sin, you were followers of Satan, you were followers of the world, and the spirit that is now in you at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what you once were. And of course he goes on to talk about being saved by grace. Think about John 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus uh, to order the kingdom, uh, you, or, you enter the kingdom through repentance and faith, through a new birth. You can become born again. It's something different. Something changes in you. So the question is quite clear and consistent, I think, in the uh, Bible. The new birth gives us a new nature. It is not merely an intellectual decision. When you get saved, you don't decide one day, I'm going to convert to Christianity. I think that today I'm going to believe in Jesus. No, the, the, the Lord must do a, a spiritual operation in you 
break the power of canceled sin, break the dominion of sin, regenerate you, give you a new heart, so that you will believe. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the uh, power to become sons of God, who were born, here's a new birth, described for us, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, it's not something that we muster up. It's not something that somebody else can do for us. It's, it's God who brings about the new birth. And so, Paul is merely bringing those truths into this uh, discussion by saying, if all this is true, how can a Christian continue to live in sin? And, and as we know, he's not talking about how can a Christian sin, because we, there's a sense in which we sin at all times, because we're, we're not perfect, because we don't have a perfect heart. We're not glorified yet. Everything we do is tainted with sin. But he's talking about these seriousness, these sins that we we continue to practice without any uh, any concern it would appear. God's purpose for us is to make us holy, not just to save us from hell, and to continue to let us live as rebels as we did before. Now, if you want to be unrighteous, if you want to continue in sin, that's perfectly fine. On, on one hand, it's your decision. But you've got to understand what Paul is saying here. You are not in the kingdom of God. You're not saved. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, let's read the first six verses. Again, this brings out some of these things. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor true joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there he's telling the, the Ephesian church pretty much the same thing, right? Jesus, we see here why Jesus loved us and died for us, and that is that he might make us people who love the Lord and serve the Lord, live as we were created to live. And so he states really the same thing that he states here in 1 Corinthians 6. And there's a sense in which it's all pretty clear and logical. I'm trying to proclaim it as clearly as I can today. Christians who are not different than they were before they were saved, that doesn't mean there's in some of us, it, it doesn't always look the same. But we are different people than we were before. We have the Holy Spirit. We love Christ. We hate sin. Not as we ought to, 
but it bothers us when we see it in us and we are striving to be like Christ. And if that's the case, we will not live in the open, obvious, evil sin in a continuous fashion. <clears throat> and so, the first thing he does here is say there's something you should know. Secondly, he says that, that it's possible to be deceived in this. And certainly we know there are many out there today who are deceived in this, who think that uh, all you got to do is believe in Jesus and you're going to heaven and it really doesn't matter how you live. And they think that salvation is merely a decision that we make, not a divine work of God. And, and they're absolutely right. If, 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 if all men, no matter, you know, all men born of Adam are capable of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ on their own and they don't need the Holy Spirit's work, if it's just a decision we make, then that means there's no change in it, right? We're not any different than we were before. But if the Holy Spirit has to open up our hearts and minds and give us a new heart, as the Old Testament says is the promise of the new covenant, and regenerate us, then it only makes obvious sense that if I'm regenerate now and I wasn't regenerate then, I, I can't be unaffected. I've got to be a different person. I've got to live differently. And that's all he's saying. And yet we, we know how easy it is for some who have been very deceived in this area. And so the third thing then, what he's doing here is reminding us of the truth of God's work, what being saved, being converted actually means. So he says, don't be deceived. If you've forgotten the answer to the question, he says, let me clarify you. Clarify it in no uncertain terms. Such were some of you. So there's a truth that we need to understand. We used to practice those things, but we don't anymore. And, of course, the point being that if you, if one of us who says we're a Christian does practice those things, like in chapter 5, that guy sleeping with his father's wife, then... You are to remove him from church because he is demonstrating that he is not a Christian. So here we realize he's speaking of lifestyles and not isolated acts of sin. And that's something obviously you've got to keep in mind. We might say they're living as illegal aliens. They're trying to enjoy the perks of citizenship and eternal life and forgiveness of their sin without actually being citizens. They're not actually being, they haven't actually become sons of God. We don't want to obey the laws. We don't want the duties of citizenship. We just want all the goodies of citizenship. And that's kind of what they're doing here, these false professors. And so one thing this passage does is tell us that God isn't an affirming God, as many would like us to think. He's actually quite judgmental. And when I say that, I say that in the best of ways, best of intentions. He is our creator who has communicated to his creatures and he has every right to expect that we listen and obey what he says, right? Many hope that God just accepts us no matter how we live, but God is making it very plain in his word. No, that's not how it works. I created you for a certain purpose and and. We lost that in the fall, but Jesus is restoring the image of God in us. We are not free to do whatever we want to do. In Matthew 7, in chapter 7, 25, remember how easily that's brought out. 
Lord, Lord, have we not done all these marvelous works in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, you haven't fed me when I was naked, uh, or when I was hungry, and clothed me when I was naked. They said, well, Lord, when we, when did that? When did we ever have the opportunity to do that? They have no clue what he's talking about. And they are judged. The Lord is judgmental because as our creator, he has every right to judge us. Of course, we thank God he's judged us in Christ Jesus if we're Christian. Now, to be fair, God is affirming. He affirms that there will be a day of judgment. And remove that doctrine from the Bible, and we will downplay the need of the gospel and sin, and instead we'll merely emphasize social things, but we won't emphasize the need of salvation. So, judgmentalism and affirming is all well and good if it is God who is doing it, and he's done it in a way that gives us an example. And it also undermines this idea of uh, that a Christian can live as he wants to, and that we, we, we don't have to worry about sin. It undermines missions which have from the start, 2,000 years ago, always been about reaching non-Christians with the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ that you are not in a good situation, but there is hope and salvation in Christ. That's what the gospel, if we boil it all down, is saying. You're under the wrath of God. You're in a precarious situation, but there is hope in Christ, right? But today... We're being told that we shouldn't try to convert someone from their religion because that's just being arrogant. And if you're a white person doing that, well, you're being a racist. Never mind that some person of color at some point gave the gospel to a white person, otherwise we'd all be lost today. But, you know, let's not get into the ridiculousness of, of the logic today. The point is, is that all mankind, no matter what you look like, is lost. We all need the same gospel. And if we say that sin is not that big a deal and that God loves you anyway, why should I go to someone and tell them about Jesus Christ if God loves them anyway? So what are we supposed to do? There's only one name under heaven whereby a man can be saved. I've got to go to people, even those who don't agree with me in another religion, tell them you've got to forsake whatever it is you're doing and trust in Jesus Christ. What are we supposed to do? Well, how about let's obey the Great Commission and we'll take our lumps because the world will hate it. They'll hate us for doing it, but that Jesus already told us that's going to happen. The other thing we need to realize is what sins he's speaking of here. Many today are trying to refine what a lifestyle is that pleases God. And by doing so, they redefine sins. And we know that some of these sins are clearly in the crosshairs of the culture. They are not to be seen as sin. And we'll, we'll spend more time with this for going next week. <clears throat> but one of the, part of the deception here is to think that these are things that God is okay with. To be a Corinthian is to be an especially immoral person. In other words, the, the use of the word Corinthian, if someone in that day said he is a Corinthian, he is saying he is a really immoral person. And even the world understood that. 
They say that the artistic center of the of Corinth had become a center for homosexual activities. So these sins had become normal sins, but they were seen all around them, and they were not they were had grown used to them and and did not see them as sin to some degree. And we saw that in chapter five. And all this is true in America today, but my job is to remind us that the word of God stands as true today as it did in Paul's day. God doesn't change. He doesn't accommodate the world whims. Sin is still sin. And no matter what's going on around us, Christians still have a certain pattern of behavior that they are to abide by. We are followers of Christ. We are, as he said in the early church, we are people of the word. We cannot live as we did before. When Paul entered the city, he didn't march to the city hall and try to enact legislation. He made a proclamation. He preached Christ. And this is how we combat sin. We preach Christ. God speaks out of this book. This is his final revelation. And in the New Testament is the clearest revelation. And so why do we want to use anything else? His power is going to work better than the power of laws. And so, uh, it, it's why use anything else? The only way I'm going to be set free from my self-love and my self-worship and sin's ruination is through the power of the gospel. But what we need to know is that we need to be saved. Now, Christians know that some sins can need to be outlawed, if possible, because of the damage they do society and even the world when it's when God hasn't abandoned it in judgment knows that. That's why murder is outlawed because people realize that if we just let murder go you know unrestrained uh, there, there can be no real uh, society right? And we know that there are other sins that destroy the family that destroy society and if possible the church should be an influence to the government. We are here to be a salt and light to stand up and say, these things are wrong, these things should be outlawed, these things are going to destroy us, when we can do those things, I'm all for it. We should be an influence for good, even politically when we can. But at the end of the day, we know that the only thing that matters is not stopping certain activity, but having a transformed heart. Because at the end of the day, if you're moral but go to hell, what have you done? We want people to be saved. We know that's the only answer. And so I think these words are reminding us about that. But so down in verse 11, the final thing he tells us is why we are no longer to walk in these sins. And I've already alluded to this, but let me just finish today by uh, dealing specifically with verse 11. <clears throat> Something radical has happened to us. He says, you know, he says we've been washed, and, and washed generally speaks of the regenerate, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit cleanses us, not just from the guilt of sin, which seems to be as far as these Corinthians seem to want to go. They, I'm saved, I'm no longer uh, going to go to hell, but I, you know, I, sin still has a hold on us, and that's evidently okay. If we, we said that they might, are thinking like Romans uh, 5 and 6, let us sin that grace may abound. They might be thinking that, well, God really doesn't care if we sin or not because it just gives him opportunity to be more gracious. So, 
you know, they, they maybe didn't have Romans 5 and 6. They didn't know about those verses. Who knows? But washing reminds us that we've been cleansed not just from the guilt of sin, but he's also given us a new heart. He's washed away that old heart. He's destroyed the dominion of sin. We now love Christ more than self. We see this in first, uh, or Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. So regeneration is a form of washing, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that verse, I think, is to be understood as we see it in our text in 1 Corinthians 6. All things have passed away. Now we look at everything with new eyes. I, I see the world that once I saw as a way to sin and satisfy self. Now I see everything as a way to serve the Lord. That's what being a new creation means. <clears throat> but the interesting thing about uh, our text here where he says you have been washed is that um, it's in the middle voice. And in the middle voice in Greek, it has the idea of doing something you've done to yourself. And that causes, now, then we got to stop and think about it, because we know that what we've been talking about so far, regeneration, is something that is done to us. And so that takes some consideration. Um, it's not the normal way of thinking about it. In one sense, we are first, in fact, the whole order is a little off to us in, in a way we probably normally would re re refer to it. We are first justified. When the Holy Spirit regenerates us so that we might have faith, we are justified by faith, through faith. That's when we're justified. And then sanctification, which is we consider of a way the Holy Spirit washes us, is that it begins after we're justified, we start to be conformed to Christ, and we call that sanctification. And so the order here is a little confusing at first sight. Paul doesn't use the order. It's that order and says we've been wa we've washed ourselves in some way and then changes to the passive voice, which is what we would have kind of assume we have been sanctified and we are we have been justified. So what's the point here? Is there anything unique in the way that he is presenting this that we should uh, see? Well, first of all, he's not giving us the order of salvation, what the theologian calls the order of order salutis. The order of salvation, uh, which I, I kind of put down kind of the, the normal way that we would uh, think about this. And, and this is all, some of this stuff is instantaneous and simultaneous. And so there, you got to be careful about trying to fit it all into a certain order. But there's a general order that we need to understand. And obviously the first one is that we're elected, right? That happened in eternity past. Then God sent the Son to provide an atonement, right, for the uh, our salvation, for the forgiveness of sin. At some point, there's got to be a gospel call, an outward call. When we hear the call, then if the Holy Spirit has given us an inward call, the efficacious call, he regenerates us so that we can hear the outward call and obey, right? Now, I think there's 
good evidence that sometimes the Holy Spirit regenerates somebody and begins to work in them before they ever hear the gospel. But then when they do hear it, then they would believe. There is conversion. That's why I say the order is necessarily uh, important, except when it comes to regeneration and conversion, because we know there are some who believe that, well, I'm going along, and all of a sudden I hear the gospel, and I decide to believe, and then when I when I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm regenerated, and I'm given a new birth. No, you don't believe until that takes place. So that's important. But you got conversion, then of course, then when we believe we are justified in Christ, and then we have the process of sanctification, ultimately glorification. So that's just kind of an overview of what we call the um, order of salvation. And obviously, I don't think Paul is doing that here as such, although he's referring, I think, to some of these things. Um, he's reminding us why it is not possible for a saint to walk as he did before. Because if you think about this, if, if this is something, these things have happened to you up up until the last one, obviously, none of us are glorified, then we are fundamentally changed, right? So he's not denying that God is the one who does this when he says you have washed yourselves in Christ. He's reminding us, though, that what has happened when we believed in Jesus Christ. I think he's using similar language to John in Revelation. So I said to him in chapter 7, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. As he looks at these who are saints, as as they have uh, come out of of tribulation of life, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood. We know that, of course, we have not done that in a literal sense, but in believing in Jesus Christ and in uh, the sanctification process, we have been, we are partakers in that. And then in chapter 22, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. No one gets into heaven unless they are people who have demonstrated that they are no longer slaves of sin. They, that doesn't earn heaven, but it proves that they are going to get into heaven. I've said this before. Every account in the New Testament that deals with the judgment is always based on works. And we know words are on the, it does not get you into heaven. But nobody who has doesn't have a changed life is getting into heaven. See the difference there. And so I think that's all it's the same when he says we've washed ourselves. We have, uh, by faith in Christ, uh, that's how we have been brought into this uh, situation. So he uses this word first to remind us of who we are. We are washed. We are those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and have been made, been given a new nature. Um, we have turned away from sin in repentance. And then from there he goes on to explain for what purpose we have been saved or washed. At some point, we are set apart by the election of grace to be separated from this world through Christ. You are washed, you are sanctified. We know that sanctified, the same word is holy. It has the idea of separation. Uh, think about uh, when God sanctified Israel and he says he brought them out of Egypt. 
We have been set apart from the world. We've been washed from our sins. We've been set apart, sanctified, set apart unto the Lord. We no longer then can live as we did before. We're not profane anymore. So you see what he's saying here. He's, he's merely using biblical language uh, to prove his point. We are saved for a purpose, to live for the Lord. And so this is possible because we have been justified and forced in Christ's blood. He died for us so that we might be washed and serve the eternal purpose of God. So simply put, he is saying that for a Christian to walk as he did before he was saved is impossible because, first of all, God didn't save you for that purpose and it denies the very uh, process of salvation. And I think it's confirmed in the next few verses. Because we we notice in verse 12, he begins to show the incongruity of living in sin by the saying of God. Notice in verse 12, there's a whole new approach to life. All things are lawful for me, but he says, but, and we'll explain this more when we get there, but all things are not helpful. So there are things that are out there that are okay, but I, as a Christian, got to think, now can I please the Lord in that? So, so if that's, that's the mindset of a Christian, I can't say, well, you know what? I'd like to commit adultery with that woman, so I think I'm going to do it. Because we're, we've forgotten who we are, and it denies everything that we are. So next week we'll examine why this list, these list of sins don't serve the purpose we have been called unto. And so that's why we, they must be rejected by saints. And we, why we must deal swiftly and harshly with them as a church towards those who identify themselves as Christians. And we will be reminded that they are still just as, they are still just as sinful today as they were in Paul's day. Social mores have absolutely nothing to do with godliness for a Christian. I want to wait, make one more point today before we close. When God saves us, notice here in this text, he breaks our past away from us so that we become new creatures, new creations, and are now defined by who we are in Christ. Not We are not defined by our past. Now, we saw this in chapter 1. We made a, a whole sermon just on our new identification. We are now Christians. We are now Christ, sons of God. We are no longer what we were. And Paul is reminding us of that here. Paul has a very different view of the relationship of the past to the present than is held by many today, especially psychologists. In the psychological world of our day, what was what one was in the past determines what he is in the present. If you were a victim in the past, you are a victim now, and and and, and so forth. And and you can't ever really get away from the past in one way or another. And that's why there's so much time and money spent in digging up the past, because it becomes a great excuse for my sin in the present. I can't help it. You know, I was abused as a kid. You know, and and, and so. It becomes an excuse. What we were in the past does not determine what we are today. Paul says that. This is what you once were, but you are no longer. Because the cross of Christ separates us not only from our sins, but from 
our past. Christ stands between us in the present and us in, as we were in the past. And he says, look, I have forgiven all that. If, if you have sinned in the past, I have forgiven that. And if you have been sinned against in the past, I am going to take care of you. I, I'm going to remove all that. I am going to give you, give you uh, something much better. The cross of Christ is the reason why we can now be what we were not then. The cross of Christ is the reason Christians cannot and must not be crooks. It doesn't matter if you were a crook. Now you know better. Now you have every reason not to be. It doesn't mean that Christians can't sin, but because they, but it, it means that they must not sin. They don't want to sin. So for a Christian to be a crook, for instance, to live with the mindset that I can take from others is for a person to return to the wicked state and to live in darkness. But we know better. We know I can't take from others. I've got to love others. I've got to live as Christ has loved me. I've been delivered from that. So when we are saved, we are completely saved. We are severed from our past identity and given a new identity. We were washed. We were cleansed out of our sin and our guilt. We are sanctified. We're set apart now to live uh, differently than we did before. For the Lord, we're justified. We're legally declared righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's all uh, transpired in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a different person. Now, that might mean that the past might always mean there are going to be battles you're going to have to fight inside and out. In other words, some things happen to us and we might not ever get away from that. I'm not saying that it's no longer, like if you could just say, and I've dealt with a lot of people who were abused as children and that's something that they have to battle in one way or another. Now some do a better job at it. It affects them for the rest of their life. And it's not because they're not a Christian. It's, it's consequences of life that you've got. But Christ, but being in Christ now means I have got some tools to use to actually enjoy life and minister and uh, do something useful. I don't have to be uh, defined by what happened to me. They, they don't rule. Our past cannot rule us. Because we can give those things to Christ. And if you have been if you have sinned against somebody, you might have to deal with the consequences of that for the rest of your life. You might be in jail for years or for the rest of your life. It, it's something that you can't ever get away from. But at least you know that it's been forgiven in Christ and that someday you shall be glorified and that it'll cease to be what it was. We know that Christ will bring justice to those who have done us wrong. And he has forgiven us and empowered us not to be ruled by those things, but to rule them. We don't have to make excuses for our past and for our sin because it's under the blood. Legally, we might have to pay the price. And that's all okay. But in Christ, we know someday it will all be over. And, and we might say we also know in Christ that there was a reason for it, as bad as it might be, we know that all things work together for good. So we know there is a purpose. That's one of the great things about having a good understanding of the sovereignty of God. There is 
good purpose even in evil. And, 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 and so we can take comfort in that. It doesn't excuse for sin, but we know that God did not, that evil did not come into the universe and God didn't want it to happen and so, well, you know, I don't want to do it. But no, he allowed it for a reason. So all these things help us deal with it. There is no reason to live in guilt and shame for what you have done before you were saved. At least not in a debilitating way. Now, if you murdered, you will spend the rest of your days in prison or worse, and that's all part of it, but you have been freed through the blood of Christ. Perhaps you have done a great sin against somebody, and you will bear the consequences of it, but if it has been forgiven in Christ, one day you will be free from all those consequences because Christ has taken the guilt upon himself. And, and that's free. Again, it doesn't mean that None of that means anything. You don't have to, you don't have, it's not, it's not inside of you. It's things you've got to deal with. But the gospel frees us from the oppression of that and from, from, from the dominion of that so that I can now serve and have joy and peace and purpose in life. Sometimes we have to come to terms with things that have happened in the past. But the only way we can effectively do that is through the gospel. And as we'll see, we are no longer to identify ourselves by our past, but by Christ. Don't identify yourself as a victim. You're a child of God. You will judge those who victimize you someday. We saw a couple chapters ago, right? So don't live defeated. Live victorious in Jesus Christ. Even if there's still pain and problems, there's no reason not to, to be able to serve the Lord well. And that's why we entitled the message, It's Dangerous to Live uh, as uh, in Sin for a Christian, because there's consequences to that that uh, are eternal. We don't want to be part of it. Well, we better stop there. Are there any questions or comments?